First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you turn with me to Job chapter 38. Uh, this is week number four in this quick five-week survey of the book of Job. And uh, so I hope you can make it next week as we conclude this uh, story and see how the, uh, the book of Job ends together. Uh, we are calling this series Shattered because Job's life was indeed shattered, and it was shattered in a single day. In one day, Job lost everything that he owned. He lost all ten of his children, and then a little bit after that, he lost his health as well and was tormented with painful boils that covered his body from the top of his head to the tip of his toes. And things were so bad for Job that his own wife said to him, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And the worst part of it was Job was a good and godly man who did not know why any of this was happening to him. As the reader of this story, we know why this was happening to Job, because we were allowed to come behind the curtain, as it were, and and eavesdrop on this conversation that happened in heaven between God and Satan, where God basically gives Satan permission to do these things to Job in order to demonstrate and to prove that Job's faith in God was real, that it was authentic. That it wasn't just based on the blessings that God had given to Job, but that Job would continue to trust in the Lord no matter what. But again, Job did not know any of that. He was totally in the dark about what was happening in his life. And of course, sometimes we can relate to that also, can't we? There are times in our life where we are suffering, and maybe you're going through a time like that right now, and sometimes we don't know why that's happening. We don't know what God is up to, and that's certainly how Job felt in this story. And then to make matters worse for Job, he had three friends, and I'll put that in in air quotes, who came and tried to lift Job up. And at first they did a good job. They, they sat with him for seven days and just merely were, were with him. They were present with him. They didn't say a word because his grief was, was so heavy. They knew there was nothing that they could say to make it better. But then starting in chapter 4, they basically lay into Job for the next 35 chapters of this book. And each of them takes turns uh, making speeches to Job. If you have to boil all the speeches down to one main message that they were giving to Job, the main message was, Job, all of these terrible things have happened to you because you are obviously a horrible, terrible sinner. And so God has done all this to you. And Job, if you don't stop your sinning, if you don't repent of your horrible, terrible sin, then more and more bad things are going to keep happening to you. And what made this so frustrating to Job to listen to these speeches for 35 chapters is that Job knew that what they were saying about him was not true. Now that's not to say that Job was perfect. He wasn't perfect any more than any of us are perfect. But Job knew that there was no sin in his life that was the cause of all of this. He he knew that uh, this was not happening in response to some terrible sin that he had committed. 
And by the way, Jim Johnson, who was with us last week, pointed this out as well. Job was right about that. And God says so in chapter 42 of this book. At the very end of this story, Job says, or God says that Job was right and that Job's friends were wrong in what they were saying about him. So in the end of this story, Job is vindicated by God, and we'll look at that vindication more next week. But before God vindicates Job in chapter 42, God wants to set the record straight between he and Job. Maybe he wants to set the record straight between us and him today as well. Now, Job had been asking for God to come and speak to come and be a referee, to be an umpire who would call the balls and strikes and say who was right and who was wrong. And God does do that. God does speak. But I don't know that Job was fully prepared for what God came to say. Because before God vindicates Job in chapter 42, again, he wants to put Job and really all of us in our place before him, starting in chapter 38. So let's read the first 11 verses together. Job 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, this far you may come, but no further... Here, your proud waves must stop. Let's pray together before we go any further. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you come and speak to us what we need to hear, even if it isn't what we want to hear. Father, we pray today, as we always do, as we open your word, that as we study your word today, you would cause us to trust more in you and more in your son, Jesus, than we did when we came in. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We know despite what I said earlier about how God essentially says in chapter 42 that Job was right and his friends were wrong, that does not mean that everything that Job said in this story was 100% on target. And we need to remember that Job was hurting, that Job's life had been shattered. He was suffering. He was confused. He was in the dark about what was happening in his life. And so sometimes as he speaks out of his pain, he walks right up to that line of accusing God of doing wrong. There are times where you read Job's words and it almost seems as though he's demanding an explanation from the Lord. And what God says to Job in verse 2 is that some of what Job said in this story were words without knowledge. In other words, that on occasion, Job didn't know what he was talking about. Because as wise and godly as Job was, he needed to remember, as we need to remember, that there is still so much that God knows 
that we do not know. Throughout this book, Job has been asking a lot of questions of God. And so now God says, Job, it's, it's my turn to ask the questions. That's why in verse 3, God says, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. Job had been asking for a day in court before a judge. And God says, all right, Job, you can have your day in court if you want to. And so let's get things started by you stepping up onto the witness stand. And let me ask you some questions and we'll see how you do answering them. By one person's count, God asked Job 77 questions in the next four chapters. We won't be able to read all of these questions in the time that we have, but as we work our way through God's wisdom from the whirlwind, I want us to see that in the midst of this barrage of questions that that God wanted Job to hear four clear messages. I think God wants us to hear those same four clear messages today as well. And the first message is perhaps the most important one. That in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of everything that's happening in our lives that we do not understand, God just wants us to hear him saying, I am here. And maybe you say, well, where do you see that in what God said? Well, what I would tell you is that I don't see that so much in what God says to Job. I just see it in the fact that God speaks to Job. And that's why verse 1 of chapter 38 is one of the most important verses in this entire story. Because after 35 chapters of Job and his friends going back and forth, talking to each other, finally, in chapter 38, God speaks to his servant Job. And that's important because Job's friends talk throughout this book as if God had obviously abandoned Job. They talked as if God had left him, that God would never come back to him. God would never say anything to him again unless he repented of all the terrible sins that in their minds he was guilty of committing. And all of this had an effect on Job, I believe. He began to wonder whether or not the Lord had abandoned him. But listen to what Job said back in chapter 23. He said, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat Look, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. In other words, Job felt like he couldn't find God anywhere. It seemed like everywhere he looked for God, God was not there. God was totally silent, that he had left Job all alone, that he was nowhere to be found. And friend, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like there was something you were going through in your life and and for some reason you just could not sense God's presence in your life as you could at other times? Have you ever had a time where you felt like you were pouring out your heart to God in prayer and it just seemed to you as though your prayers were bouncing off the ceiling and God was not even hearing you? It doesn't mean those things are true, but there are times when we really do feel that way. That's how... Job felt. And so more than anything else, Job just needed to hear from God. He needed to know that his God was there with him. And when you read through these chapters, you will notice 
that as God speaks to Job, he really doesn't directly answer Job's questions at all. God never tells Job, at least that we know of, about the conversation that happened between he and Satan in heaven. He never really answers that. He never really explains to Job why everything happened to him, but he does speak to Job. And he meets Job right where he is. And and here is the deal, just like Job, what we need in the midst of our suffering is actually not an explanation from God. What we need is an encounter with God. And friend, maybe that's why you are here today. Maybe you've been thinking, I I just need an explanation from God. I need to know why this happened. I need to know why that happened. And, And the reality is you may never get that explanation this side of heaven. But what God wants to do is, is he wants for you and me to encounter him. And he wants our lives to be transformed by that encounter. And the God who wants to meet with us, the God who wants to speak to us, is a loving, personal God. You know, in verse 1, when it says, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, the, the word Lord there that's in all capital letters stands for the Hebrew name of God, the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. That name showed up in the first two chapters of the book of Job. But then starting in chapter 3 and all the way to chapter 37, do you know that that personal covenant name of the Lord Yahweh was never used in all of those chapters? Instead, in all of those chapters, as Job and his friends were speaking, the name for God that is used is the name El Shaddai. It's a name for God that refers to the almighty God, the all-powerful God. And it's a perfectly good name for God. It's a name for God that's used elsewhere in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And yet when that name for God, El Shaddai, is found on the lips of Job's friends, it almost seems as if for them, at least for Job, in their opinion, God was not the personal God. God was not the covenant God. God was not the loving personal God of Job, but instead he was just a God who had a lot of power that Job better not trifle with. And yet here in chapter 38, when God directly speaks to Job, that name Yahweh shows up again. The personal, faithful God of Job was there. And he had been there all along, even when Job could not feel it. And friend, listen, God has not abandoned you either. The personal covenant promise-keeping God who saved you is still with you right now, no matter what you are going through in your life. And he is saying, this is one of the very clear messages he said to Job, one of the very clear messages he wants to say to us, I am here and I have not gone anywhere. Here's the second message God wants us to hear. Not only is he saying, I am here, he is saying, I am infinitely wise. In these four chapters, God actually makes two speeches to Job. And the speeches are very similar, but they do make distinct points. And clearly, the subject of the first speech that's found in chapters 38 and 39 is God's complete wisdom and knowledge. 
that is far beyond Job's comprehension and far beyond our comprehension as well. As you read through these chapters, the way that God speaks to Job is is pretty strong. He is pretty direct with Job. There are times where he even employs sarcasm with Job in order to get his point across. But we need to remember that the Lord is not being snide here. The Lord is not being unkind here. The Lord loves his servant Job. Job is his child and he loves him, but he loves him too much to not correct him when he hears him speaking words that are misguided And uninformed. And he loves us too much to not correct us when we do that as well. And so when we read these chapters, we need to read them as though it were a father instructing his child or a teacher instructing his student. And he is asking Job all of these questions in order to instruct him, in order to teach him. And basically what God asked Job here in these two chapters are two clear questions. Number one, do you know how everything was made that I made? And number two, are you able, do you know how to sustain and to take care of all of the things that I have made? And obviously the answer to both of those questions is no. Now, the Lord starts out in verse 4 by talking about the beginning of creation when the earth was first formed. And he says, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created the world? And Job was in the same place that we were when God created the world. He was nowhere. None of us were there. And really, God could have ended his argument at that point. Right? He could have said, Job, what in the world are you doing questioning the way that I governed the world when you were not even here when I created the world and you do not even have the foggiest clue of how I did it? You know, sometimes you will hear somebody older say to somebody younger, you know, you weren't even born yet when I did this or when I did that, right? And, and it's a way of saying to them, what are you doing questioning? You weren't even around when I learned how to do that. This is basically what God is saying to all of us. He's saying, none of you were around when I created the world. We're just a few verses in, and I think already Job is probably feeling about one inch tall, and yet God has just gotten started. There are four more chapters of this verbal beatdown that is coming Job's way. In verses 8 through 11, God talks about when he formed the oceans and how he made the continents to rise up out of the sea. He talks about how the beaches are like the bars and the doors of the sea where God said to the water, you can come this far, but you can't go any further. And you know, sometimes when I'm out at Melbourne Beach and I'm standing there on the beach, this verse comes to my mind. And I think about how I am standing at the very doors of the sea. And I'm looking out at a body of water that I only see a fraction of that goes further than I can fathom and is deeper than I can comprehend. And I'm standing literally on the door of the ocean where God has said, this far you can come and no further. As you read on in this passage, the Lord brings up the sun in verse 12, he says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? He isn't as much talking about the original creation of the sun. He's talking about how he oversees the sun's rising every single morning. God is the one who makes it happen every day. 
Down in verse 22, he, he's speaking about different aspects of the weather, the storehouses of snow and hail. He talks about the wind and the thunder and the rain. In, in verse 26, he talks about how he takes time to irrigate land that nobody is even living on. And the implication is Job isn't thinking about that land. Neither are we. He isn't thinking about whether that land over there that nobody's even living on is going to get water or whether it's not. And yet all of these things are under the auspices of our God. I love what he says in verse 31 and 32. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? He's speaking about constellations of stars in the heavens that Job didn't make, that Job can't comprehend. And, and you know, when you think about how many stars there are, you know, some estimate that there are two trillion galaxies with an average of a hundred million stars in each galaxy. If you add that all up, it would mean that the number of stars is 10 to the 20th power. And yet this is what it says in Psalm 147. He counts the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. All of them their name. I can't even remember my four sons' names half the time, right? God remembers all of these trillions of stars. And is there anything that makes you feel smaller than when you lie down on a starry night away from the city and you look up at the sky and you see all the stars and you realize that our sun, that our planet goes around, is just one star like all of those stars and that we're just seeing a fraction of all of the stars that God has made that fill this universe. Is there anything that makes you feel smaller than that? We are small and God is big and he is bigger than we can fathom. It says there in verse 35 of chapter 38, Job, can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. God is saying, Job, you, you want to take a try at, at just calling on the lightning and saying, lightning, come here. And, and you think they're really going to respond to you and say, here we are, Job. Where do you want us to strike? You know, this past week, I took a trip with my son Silas. And when we were in the car, I had my phone up there on the dash and, and, and he was trying to get it to respond. And so he kept saying in different voices, hey, Siri, hey, Siri, hey, Siri. And of course, it wouldn't respond to him. Because when you're setting up your iPhone, one of the things you set it up with, right, is your voice recognition. So he could say, hey, Siri, as many times as he wanted to. It wasn't going to do anything for him. But if I said, hey, Siri, it would respond. In the same way, Job can say, hey, lightning, as much as he wants to. And so can we. The lightning ain't doing diddly for Job or for you and me. But if God says, hey, lightning, the lightning says, here I am. We won't read through it all, but starting in verse 39 and really carrying on through the entire next chapter, chapter 39, there's a new section where God asks Job if he has the wisdom and the knowledge to take care of all of the animals that he has created. Just to get a sense of the argument, look at verse 39 of chapter 38. He says, can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? 
And as you read on in chapter 39, all together, the Lord mentions six different land animals. He mentions the lion, the mountain goat, the deer, the wild donkey, the wild ox, and the war horse. And in this section, you'll also find God talk about five different birds. He mentions the raven and the ostrich and the stork and the hawk and the eagle. And the bottom line is this, when it comes to all of these animals, we didn't make them. We don't really fully understand them. We can't provide for them and they don't obey our voice. In other words, we don't know anything when it comes to God about everything that he has made. And so what is the point? The point is that he's making to Job and that he's making to us is who do we think we are to correct God when something happens in our life that we do not understand. That's basically what God says to Job at the end of this first speech, which you can find at the beginning of chapter 40. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 40. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. I like how the ESV puts verse 2. It says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? A fault finder. And sometimes that's what we are when it comes to God, isn't it? We are a fault finder. We, we find fault with God because maybe we don't like something that God has allowed to happen in our lives, or, or maybe we think we, we should never have anything bad happen to us in our life because we're a child of God. And, and some people think that way, and there's even some theology out there that kind of leads you in that direction, where we start to say things like, well, God, I can't believe that this happened to me. I, I'm a child of yours. I, I believe in you. I, I read your Bible every day. I, I go to church. God, I serve you. God, I in the choir. God, I go on mission trips. And so God, how could this happen to me? How could my spouse leave me like this? How could I, of all people, get this cancer diagnosis when I've been faithful to you, God, and I've followed you? And sometimes these are the feelings that well up in our hearts because we feel inside somehow that God has wronged us, that God has broken some type of a bargain that he made with us on the day that we were saved. And we want to put God on the witness stand. And we want to get him to answer our questions. And what we need to hear God just lovingly, gently saying to us this morning is this. Is it right for you to rebuke me? Is it right for you to tell me how I need to govern your life and govern this world when you do not understand one zillionth of what I understand. You do not know what I am doing. You do not know the purpose of it. You don't know where it's heading. And you need to stop talking. And you need to start trusting. And that's what he says to Job. And that's what he says to us. As hard as it is for us to hear, it is the truth. And in verses 3 through 5, Job is beginning to understand that. And so his first response to God's first speech, which we'll talk more about next week, he says, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Job realizes he really doesn't have anything else to say to God 
at this point. But God still has a few more things to say to Job. And so starting in verses 6 and 7, God launches into his second speech, and it begins the same way the first speech did. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And we'll come back to verses 8 through 14 in just a moment, but everything else in this second speech, starting in verse 15 of chapter 40, And going all the way through the end of chapter 41, all of that is about two extraordinary animals, the behemoth and the leviathan. And here is the message that God wants us to hear in these verses. Not only is God saying, I am here and I am all-knowing, but God is also saying, I am all-powerful. God describes this creature called the behemoth, starting in verse 15 of chapter 40. Look at that with me. He says, look now at the behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. See now his strength is in his hips. His power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are tightly knit. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring near his sword. Surely the mountains yield food for him. All the beasts of the field play there. He lies under the lotus trees in a covert of reeds and marsh. The lotus trees cover him with their shade. The willows by the brook surround him. Indeed, the river may rage, yet he is not disturbed. He is confident, though the Jordan gushes into his mouth, though he takes it in his eyes, or one pierces his nose with a snare. Naturally, there is a lot of debate surrounding what precisely this animal, the behemoth, was, uh, just as there is a lot of debate about what Leviathan was in the next chapter. Now, the word behemoth is really a generic term that just refers to a large land animal, and so really that's not conclusive. And so we're left to kind of piece together what this animal may have been based on the description of him that we find in these verses. And what makes that even more difficult is this is all poetry. And so you don't know what is intended to be taken as poetic license. For example, in verse 18, where it says that his ribs are like bars of iron. We understand that as a simile. They weren't literally iron. Similarly, when we read about Leviathan in the next chapter, and it speaks about him spewing smoke and fire out of his nose and his mouth, surely there is poetic license being taken here. And so there are different theories that have been given surrounding the behemoth. Probably the most common and the most accepted answer is that the behemoth was a hippo. Hippos were feared creatures in the ancient world, and they are still, rightly so, feared creatures today. And hippos do fit with a lot of the description that is found in these verses, with the notable exception of what it says in verse 17, when it says that the behemoth's tail is like a cedar. If you've ever seen a hippo's tail, it could hardly be described as a cedar tree. Other people have suggested the elephant as a possible answer. It's also possible, but again, while an elephant's trunk may be compared to a cedar tree, that cannot be said of its tail. So the actual answer is we do not know. Now one possibility, and for those who hold as I do for it to a younger age of the earth, And this is particularly true if you remember that Job is one of the earliest books in the Bible and that Job actually lived shortly after the period of the great flood, which is talked about 
in the chapters of Genesis, one possibility is that behemoth could have been a large, fearsome creature that is now extinct, such as one of the dinosaurs. And pastor and scholar John MacArthur acknowledges that actually a dinosaur of some type fits with all of the characteristics that are talked about in this passage. The same could actually be said of Leviathan in chapter 41. The Leviathan is clearly a sea creature of some type. Some have suggested a great white shark or a killer whale. Those are definitely possibilities. The most common answer given for Leviathan, though, is that he was a crocodile. Over in verse 15, you see the description of the scales of this creature. It says, His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and cannot be parted. Now, a crocodile would certainly fit with the description there of the scales. But there are other elements in this passage, as well as in other places of the Bible where it speaks about Leviathan, where a crocodile does not fit the description nearly as well. Here and in other passages in the Bible, Leviathan shows up as a creature of the deep sea that swims where the ships travel. And that really does not fit with the crocodile. So again, a killer whale or a shark of some type is possible, but it's also possible, again, that this description is of an ancient, though now extinct, seagoing dinosaur, of which scientists tell us there were several varieties. But the major focus in these chapters really should not be on exactly what behemoth or leviathan were. That would be to miss the point. The main focus should be on the fact that God has created creatures which are so strong and so terrifying that no human being can control them. That's what he says in chapter 41, verse 1. He says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Are you going to go fishing for him, Job? Is that what you're going to do? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you leash him for your maidens? He's describing Leviathan as though Job, if he did catch him, what are you going to do with him, Job? Are you going to make him your little pet? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to put a leash on him? Let me know how that works out for you. Right? And that's why he says in verse 8, lay your hand on him, remember the battle, and never do it again. In other words, if you do that, you're only going to do it one time. And so what is the point? The point of all of this is there in verses 10 and 11. No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? God is saying, Job, if you can't even stand up to behemoth, if you can't even stand up to Leviathan, do you honestly think that you can stand up to me? I'm the one who created them. I'm the one who actually does have them on my leash. And yet you honestly think that you can come into the courtroom against me and put me on trial and win your case? As one has said, Job would have been better off fighting against a killer whale or a dinosaur. And of course, so would we. So far we've seen that God has said, I am here I have infinite wisdom. I have all power. And then here's the fourth and final message I believe God wants us to hear in these pages. He's saying to us, I am perfectly just. 
You know, some people read these chapters of Job and they honestly feel like God is not giving Job a fair shake. They, they feel like God is, is kind of sidestepping the main questions that Job has and he's not really answering him or explaining things to him. And on one level, I get what they're saying. I mean, how comforting is it after you've lost everything you own and all of your children to have God say to you, well, have you thought about the ostrich? Right? I mean, how comforting, right, is that when you're going through all this and God just keeps reminding you of one animal after the next? And so on a certain level, I get what they are saying. And so we need to ask the question, why is God saying all of this to Job? Why is he taking him through a nature stroll through all of his creation and pointing all of these things out to him? I think when you look a little bit closer, you realize God is really not talking about ostriches and horses and hippos. He's talking about who he is and who Job is, and who we are. Because Job had started down the pathway of questioning the way that God governed the world and the way that God governed his life, and he was beginning to ask, is the way God is governing my life fair? Is it just? Is, is it right? And so God answers him, but he doesn't answer him in the way we would expect. He starts with creation. And what he's saying to him is, Job, listen, if you don't have enough wisdom and you don't have enough power to be able to make all that is there in creation, to be able to sustain all of it, to be able to take care of it, if you can't do any of that when it comes to the natural world, then Job, how do you think that you're going to be able to govern the moral world better than I can govern it? That's the argument that God is making. And you especially see that in verses 8 through 14 of chapter 40. I want you to turn back there with me. Chapter 40, verse 8. God says, Job, would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? They adorn, then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. What God is saying to Job is that sometimes it is tempting when things don't go well in our life to think that maybe we could do a better job than God does of governing our life. And, and God is reminding Job that's actually the same path that Satan took. And he basically says, Job, if you want to go down that road, if you want to say that you would be a better God than I am, then, then basically he says in verse 10, why don't you just do it? Why don't you just clothe yourself with majesty and splendor and glory and beauty? Clothe yourself the way I am clothed and step on up there and sit on the throne, Job, and let's let you have a whirl at it. And then he says, here's some tests for you, Job. If you really want to do that, he goes on to say, look, I know you want me to take judgment out on the people who stole all your animals, the people who killed all your servants. Do you want to take a stab at that? Job, are you the one who's going to put every wicked person down in their place? Are you the one who can bring them down to the grave? Are you the one who wants to be the moral governor of this entire universe? And he says, I got a couple more tests for you. And then he spends the next chapter and a half 
saying, Job, before I let you run the universe, let's just see if you can handle two creatures that I've made, behemoth and leviathan. If you can handle them, well, then we'll let you take a stab at everything else. And Job did not miss the point that God was making, and neither should we. If we cannot handle them, then we cannot handle being God either. And God is not being unjust towards us. He is perfectly just. And one day we will see that clearly. One day God will turn the light on. And every wrong will be righted on that day. And every sin will be paid for one way or another, either on the cross or in all eternity. Even if right now, like Job, we have to trust God in the dark. He says, keep on trusting. Here's really the main idea of this message today. God is God and we are not in church. That is a very, very good thing. Because we cannot govern our world or our lives better than he can. So we need to learn to trust God even when we don't understand. Even when we don't have the answers to all of our why questions, we can trust in who our great God is. You know, a few weeks ago we talked about what philosophers call the problem of evil. As I was thinking about the outline today, you know, really the four lessons that God was teaching Job and teaching us are, are really some of the same arguments that people make when they articulate the problem of evil. Look back at your outline. People say, well, well if God is really present, if he's really here, if God is really all-knowing, if God is really all-powerful, and if God is actually just, then there wouldn't be any evil present in the world because God would put a stop to it. And we talked about that a few weeks ago and some of the biblical responses to that. But isn't it interesting that God's answer to Job is to take him out of his own head and out of his own thoughts and turn his eyes back up to himself and basically to say the same four things to Job. I am really here, and I do know everything, and I do have all power, and I am actually just, and you need to trust in that even when you don't understand it. You know, the other thing I thought about when I looked at these four lessons is that ultimately they all find their climax biblically at the cross of Jesus Christ. God said to Job, I am here. That's one of the names of Jesus, isn't it? Emmanuel, God with us. We know that God is here because God came. And when we put our trust in him, he comes to live inside our hearts. God said to Job, I am all-knowing. I have all wisdom. And the Bible says that Christ himself is the knowledge and the wisdom of God. And even though the cross looks like foolishness to the world, we know that it is the wise plan of God to save those who would turn to him. God said to Job, I am all powerful. And where can we see the power of God better put on display than at the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ defeated sin and defeated Satan and defeated the grave? And then God said to Job, I am perfectly just. And it is at the cross where we see the justice of God on display. We see at the cross how seriously God takes our sin. How seriously God takes evil in the world. That the only thing that could atone for it was the precious son. The precious blood of his son Jesus Christ. It is at the cross that the justice and the love of God come together for us to see. 
In chapter 40, verse 14, God said to Job, if you can really do all of this, then I will say to you, you can save yourself with your own right hand. Of course, Job couldn't do all of that, and Job couldn't save himself, and neither can we. God and God alone can save us, and that's why Jesus came. All we have to do is turn to him and to his cross. God is God, and we are not. And in that glorious truth, our hope for salvation is found. Let's pray together. Father, we bow in your presence. And we bring all of our hurt and all of our suffering to you. And God, I know even as I talk about these things that this is not a hypothetical thing for many in this room. Many in this room are hurting and suffering right now. And they're coming to you with their questions. Father, I pray today that you would wrap your arms of love around them. Father, you would speak truth. Father, you would help us to rest in the knowledge that you are all we need. That we may not understand this side of heaven, all the wise, but we know you. And Lord, may that be enough for us. Father, help us to trust in you and in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.